0: We 're about to finish up, should finish up next week uh, on Colossians, <clears throat> and then I will say I am going to sit it out over the summer, uh, largely because Janelle and I have several trips out of town uh, that are going to take us away for a number of Sundays, and uh, i don 't want to start something new and then have no real continuity. Uh, to it and the summer months are a hard time for continuity anyhow cuz so many people head off on vacation and uh what we're wanting to uh, and planning to do in the fall is I'm planning to do uh to go through the book uh, Principles of Spiritual Growth. Uh it's been taught here before but it's been a number of years and it's just a very significant study. And so I do want to be at a place where we can uh, maintain some continuity and not be uh, t- having big gaps in it as we as we go through it. Uh so I think uh Thomas has different i uh, said he has some different ones he's gonna get to fill in um, on maybe one or two shot uh lessons during the uh the summer months, uh but then uh come September uh, we'll be planning on uh, doing the study on the principles of spiritual uh, growth. Now, <clears throat> of course, we're coming to the end of this letter. Next week, we'll probably just have uh, Paul's closing remarks, which generally aren't hugely exciting, but uh, are there. And I don't like to skip over them uh, unless I have to. <clears throat> but... You know, as we've been going through this letter, we've been seeing that the overarching theme is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. There is no provision for us, for the Christian life, that isn't found in Christ, and isn't found in what He has provided. We're told by Paul that we are complete in Him. We lack nothing. Everything we need for... uh, Peter tells us that we have everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And instead of devoting our energies to looking for other things, our Christian life needs to be uh, focused on Christ. Getting to know Him in an ever-deepening, an ever-more personal way. The more we come to know Him, the more He transforms us. I used to tell my students, I I have never come to know anyone who really got to know Christ in a deep, intimate, personal way that was not transformed by Him. You just can't do it. The more He fills your heart, the more He fills your mind. The more His heart becomes your heart. The more His mind becomes your mind. The more His ways become your ways. I can't encourage you enough to come to the Scriptures to meet Him. To get to know Him. To be transformed by Him. Get your focus off of your life and trying to fix your life. And get your focus on Him. And becoming a a channel through which His life flows. As I said, I think it was last week, we often hear, you know, Christ wants us to give our life to Him. No, He wants us to embrace His life. Our life stinks. He doesn't want it. He says, leave it at the cross. Leave who you are and what you are apart from me hanging on the cross and embrace this new life I have for you. He challenges us to put off the old man and put on the new. And in the section of the letter we're in, the focus is on as we put off the old and we put on the new, here is how it is intended to manifest itself. Now, the last few weeks I've put this quote up, and I'll do it again because it is important. It says, "...in that there are two distinct natures seeking expression by means of our as-yet unredeemed body, we must keep them separated in our thinking." We've got to keep separated what is the old man and what is the new. We've got to separate them in our thinking." And you know, I pointed out a lot of people say, "Well, because the old man was crucified, he's dead." No. We died with Christ. The old man is crucified. It's in a place of judgment, that will lead to its destruction. But it's still alive. Just like if you read the crucifixion account, the thieves are hanging there, and they're still talking. They're crucified, but they aren't dead. They're in a place of judgment, but they aren't dead. They will be, but they aren't. And there are certain things that Scripture says are crucified, and certain things that it says are dead. The world has been crucified. The world's not dead. It isn't gone. It's out there. It's still got its influence. You know, the law was nailed to the cross. The law isn't gone. And neither is the old man. But we're to put him off. We're to see him as something only worthy of judgment. And we're to put on this new man which has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It cannot function apart from Him. It is a life in union with him. And we've seen how putting off the old and putting on the new is intended to manifest itself in the wife's relationship to her husband, the husband's relationship to his wife, the children's relationships to their parents, their parents' relationships to their children, the slave's relationship to his master, the master's relationship to uh, his uh, uh, servants. All these are kind of binding relationships in, in which we're to put off the old, put on the new. And it's not that we're to try to make the old man look that way, which is what many do and fail. It says we find ourselves struggling in the areas that Paul describes, that it shows us that we are not fully living on the basis of our new life in Christ. And it should push us over there to Him. Our failures should keep bringing us back to Christ. Now, today we pick up in chapter 4, verse 2. And as Paul moves forward, continuing to flesh out what, life, uh, what the life of the new man looks like, he moves away from addressing the specific groups he's been speaking to, and now he speaks of some ways that it is intended to manifest itself in believers in general. And he begins with the very important matter of prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. Paul tells us that as we put off the old man and we put on the new, our, our life, you know, on the basis of our new man in union with Christ is intended to be a life that is devoted to prayer. Now the Greek word translated devote means to be steadfast. It denotes to continue steadfastly in the thing and give unremitting care to it. Now again, the new man draws its life from Christ. And therefore, it is intended to show forth the pattern of Christ. And if you go back and you read through the Gospels, we're just finishing up with the Gospel of Mark, there in the main service. But if you go back and you read through the gospel accounts of Christ's life here on earth, what does stand out is his steadfastness in prayer. Despite the incredible ministry he had, the crowds of people who were clamoring to, to see him and hear him, he still always took time out to go and spend time in prayer with the Father. Prayer was a huge part of his life in ministry. He recognized his need to be alone with the Father. And I believe that as we grow in our abiding relationship with Him as new creations, this quality is going to be increasingly seen in us. It's not about teaching the old man to pray more. It's about, as I grow in my relationship with Christ, prayer should become more and more important to me. W. H. Griffith Thomas writes, Just as uninterrupted breathing is a natural expression and necessary function of our bodies, so is constant prayer to our souls. He's saying, prayer is to our, what, uh, to our souls, what, or to our new life, what breathing is to our bodies. And as we put off the old and we put on the new, this devotion to prayer is going to become more and more apparent. Now he says that this steadfast state of prayer will become accompanied by a state of watchfulness and thanksgiving. Now, W.H. Griffith Thomas makes an interesting uh, note regarding the uh, watchfulness here. He says, It is to be noted that nowhere are we told what or whom to watch. Since the verb, though in an active voice, is invariably found without the customary definite article, uh, or de- uh, definite object, uh, he's saying, You know, normally th- this verb would have a direct object. <laughs> You would be told to watch this or or to watch that, but he says it's not there. And he's he said, you know, it's kind of an unusual structure because the verb which normally demands a direct object doesn't have one. So he says he goes on. We are not to watch self, for it is too delusive. <laughs> Our self life will delude us. It'll, you know, uh, we are not to watch Satan. <laughs> He is too elusive. W.H. Griffith Thomas loves the alliteration. Um, We are not to watch the circumstances, for they are too elusive. What's elusive? Huh? Being elusive. uh, You know... Yeah.
1: Is
0: it illusionary? Like... Yeah, yeah. Illus yeah. elusive, would I think, have a delusionary effect on us and things. So, perhaps the absence of any object for this word "watch" means we are to keep our gaze fixed on Christ. Looking off unto Jesus as we work and as we wait for His return. Being occupied with Him, we shall be enabled to see all that is necessary for us to see. And this will be conclusive. And we shall neither be depressed by ourselves and our sins, distracted by our foes, nor disheartened by our surroundings. Then we can say with the psalmist, In thy light shall we see light. He says, Man, you know, if our eyes are on Jesus, then, you know, we aren't going to be depressed by ourselves and our failures and our sins. We aren't going to be distracted by the enemy around us. We aren't going to be disheartened by what's going on in our surroundings. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we pray, he says, do it with our eyes on him. And then if we do so, it cannot help but result in thanksgiving. Now, there's probably no one who has been more devoted to watching Christ than the Apostle Paul. And you find as you read through his writings, he often spoke of his thankfulness. I find it interesting that even in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul gave thanks. I mean, he's writing to a church with n- unbelievable problems. Immorality going on. You know, all sorts of uh, lawsuits going on. All this stuff going on, and yet Paul gave thanks. In chapter 1, verse 4 of it, he said, I thank God always concerning you why for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Why could Paul be thankful for this carnal bunch of believers? Because his focus was on Christ and His grace rather than his focus being on them. And if our focus is on anyone or anything other than Christ, we'll always have have cause for complaining. If our eyes are fixed on Christ, there will always be cause for thanksgiving. There will always be something to thank Him for. Now, moving forward in verses 3 and 4, Paul encouraged the Colossian believers that they used their prayer in a way of involvement in what the Lord was doing through him and his co-workers. He says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open the door for us for the words, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, those things that had not previously been revealed, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, one of the blessings of God's grace is that when God brings us into salvation, He gives us the privilege of being coming involved in what He's doing. You and I have the privilege of being involved with God. A work he could do by himself, a work that he could do through his angels, but a work that he chooses to let us be a part of. And there's a lot of different ways that grace opens the door for us to be uh, involved with God. Sometimes at certain ministries like missions or pastoring or... A lot of different things. Teaching Sunday school, There's a, uh, serving as a deacon. There's a lot of things. But one very significant opportunity that God in His grace gives you and me is that of intercessory prayer. Praying for others. To be involved in what God is doing throughout the world through our prayer life. I hope you really see what a privilege that is. Joe and I have the privilege of praying for a number of men and women all over this globe that God has brought into our lives. And it's a real privilege. Now, you know, back in Paul's day, he invited the Colossian believers to become involved in his ministry through prayer. And Paul had a very significant ministry, one that has spanned two millennium. The impact of Paul's ministry goes on, and there, there were many aspects of his ministry that were unique to him. No one else could do it, no one else was called to do it. But each and every first century believer had the privilege of being involved in what Paul was doing through their prayers. And Paul encourages his audience to pray for him in two specific ways. First, that God would open the door for the Word. Now, it's interesting to me that here's Paul in prison, and yet he doesn't say, pray that God will let me out. He doesn't pray that for his release, for the door to be open for him to get out. He says, pray for an open door for the Word. Paul was more concerned with, uh, uh, with proclaiming Christ than he was getting out of prison. He wanted to just see the Word go forth. And in addition to an open door for the Word, Paul also desired that they pray that God would enable him to to speak in a way that made it clear. Now here was the Apostle Paul. God had already used him dramatically. And yet, he realized he still needed God's ongoing direction. You know, Paul understood that this new life was lived in union with Christ. And it was not at a point where now, you know, he had taught a lot and he knew a lot. So now he could go it on his own. No, he couldn't. I still pray constantly, Lord, give me your words to speak. And don't let me say one word you would not have me to speak. Yes, I've spent, what, 40-some years now speaking and teaching. And I still feel very inadequate apart from Him. But He continues to show Himself faithful. And so Paul said, pray, pray for me. Pray for an open door for the Word, but pray that I will know how to present it in the best possible way. Now, we can't be involved with Paul, but there are numerous opportunities for us to pray. I hope you look for those opportunities and you, you pray for those that God brings into your life and and trust that He brings them into your life for a reason. There's been a few times I'll wake up in the middle of the night and some name will come to mind and I'll just pray for them because I figure there's a reason God brought them, the, uh, their name to mind in the middle of the night. And so you have a real privilege. Now, Can I add
1: something to. That? Sure. You know, through the years, if if say you're just starting out, really learning this about praying, and it it's not an easy or natural thing, is it? And it's not just something you just like yay kind of thing. But I uh, bet it can be. But what I was going to say was, through the years, it seems like to me as as we watch God answer prayer, it is. Increased our desire to do that Do you know what I mean So you might start out And I'm not t- talking like the last thing I don't mean it I'm trying to encourage you If you start out and, and you're just starting to learn about this Even through today or whatever And you're like man this is hard And I'm not You know I'm, I'm not so into it Or whatever Number one we do it because God told us to Not because we of feel like it A lot of the time But also just what an encouragement it is through the years as we see God answer. And how sometimes you just get to where you can't wait to just stop Mm. and talk to Him. Because you know that that's the only answer for what's Mm. going on. And it becomes a beautiful thing. And a thing that you just know. It's just part of you. Yeah, we, we pray, I pray all the way to church because like Rick said, he always thinks, he always says, Joe, pray for me. I don't feel adequate for this. And so he drives and I pray all the way to church and just do it all the way to school. And it is powerful to me to get to do that and watch God work in this person that does not ever feel like, oh, you know, I'm all set and here we go. I'm going to teach. It's more like, oh, Lord, oh Lord, that you would dare to use me, and it's just a powerful thing we get to do and it becomes more and more that as we see him answer and answer and maybe make us wait but strengthen us for waiting but in it all just to watch it work so be encouraged
0: now after addressing this issue of prayer Paul proceeds to encourage us that as we put off the old and to put on the new, (laughs) to use wisdom in our conduct towards unbelievers. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. You know, as we uh, live our new life in Christ, we have His wisdom at our disposal. And we're to use that wisdom in dealing with those outside the body of Christ. And it's, I believe, an unfortunate reality that much of what believers have done down through the years has been done through the the energy of the flesh on the basis of the old man with this idea that we're going to do it for Christ and it's evidenced by the lack of wisdom that's been uh, lack of, yeah lack of wisdom that's been used in dealing with the unbelieving world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ gave a caution to the nation of Israel. He says, "Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces." And I believe the church has often made that mistake. The message we proclaim is important, but it's equally important how we present it. Whether we use wisdom. That we make the best of the opportunities God affords us. And how do we do that? Well, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned, as it were, with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Paul says that grace is to our message what salt is to food. Salt makes food palatable. Grace is what will make our message palatable. And yet... The church often has lost focus on how important grace is. And unfortunately even more unfortunately, there's many in the church that are scared of grace, scared of showing grace. I know when we were right after we went to Ireland, I had a missionary, it was from another organization come to me say, "Rick, you can't preach too much grace, that will just encourage people to go sin." Grace doesn't do that. You know, Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes, During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, uh, belief was unique to uh, to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religion Lewis responded oh that's easy it's grace it is unique to Christianity and this it is this unique feature that stands really the greatest chance of breaking through the barriers that the unbeliever sets up Yancey goes on to write, grace is Christianity's best gift to the world, a spiritual nova in the midst exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. And yet we so struggle in this area. We struggle at times showing grace to unbelievers Sometimes we struggle even more showing grace to each other. Uh, Some years ago, I wrote to a friend on the field, a fellow who had been a co-teacher at the school for a while, but then he and his wife went overseas to do member care. And I asked him, you know, what are some of the main issues you're seeing that concern you? And here's one of the things he wrote. One of the things that I have seen on the field is the willingness to put up with a lot from the unsaved, but not being very gracious to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yet Galatians 6.10 right, says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and he underlines and puts in bold, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We can be so focused on reaching the lost that we walk right over our brother. This we have seen many times. And maybe we see the need of putting on the new and dealing with unbelievers, but we don't really see how important it is to put on the new in dealing with our fellow believers. Or maybe the flesh can only fake it so far. Maybe, they can, and maybe the flesh can fake it okay with the unbeliever, but man, when it comes to my fellow believer, it really can't do it anymore. See, the problem is that in the course of history, the church has so often stepped off the ground of grace in dealing with the world and with dealing with each other. And sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents just one more form of ungrace in dealing with each other. You know, a number of years ago we were meeting with a young man. We were actually going through principles of spiritual growth with, uh, with him. And uh, he had a wife who was an unbeliever. And Joan now asked him one day, he said, What do you think is the greatest obstacle to her responding to to, uh, Christ's offer of salvation? He said the one thing she mentioned more than anything else is the way she has seen Christians deal with each other when they sin. The lack of grace that believers show to each other. That was her biggest obstacle. It has been said that the church is the only army in the world that shoots its wounded. Rather than coming alongside them, lifting them up. Yet grace is so powerful. You know, when my dad died, we were at the graveside in this Huge black highway patrolman comes over to me, and I only mention his race because it fits into what I'm about to say. I mean, this guy was big. He he's taller than me, all muscle. That was back in the day when I think the highway patrol had a minimum height of six four to even be a patrolman. Uh, they wanted them big because they were less likely to have to use force. Uh, they were intimidating by their side. And he comes over to me, and he tells me his name, and he says, do you remember me? And I did. I didn't remember him like that. I remembered him when he was kind of a lanky teenager. And he and his brother used to come and borrow farm equipment from my dad. And all of a sudden, he starts crying. Jonel looks over, and this big highwood patrolman has his head on my shoulder just sobbing. He said, your dad was the only one in this county that would loan my brother and I equipment who was so good to us. He said, your dad changed my life. He said, you don't know how many strings I pulled to lead this procession, but he said, I wanted to do it in honor to you for your dad. And the way he treated us. See, grace is Powerful. Incredibly powerful. And yet, again, Philip Yancey writes. He says regarding the response he gets when he questions people regarding their view of evangelical Christians. He writes, recently, I've been asked, uh, asking a question of strangers, for example, seatmates on an airplane, when I strike up a conversation. When I say the words evangelical Christians, what come to mind? In reply, mostly I hear political descriptions of strident pro-life activists, of gay rights opponents, or proposals for censoring the Internet. I hear references to the moral majority and organization disbanded years ago. Not once, not once have I heard a description redolent or having the fragrance of grace. Apparently that is not the aroma Christians give off in the world. That's serious. That when the world does not think of grace... In our dealings with them, and in our dealings with each other, in a a chapter in a book, uh, no, no, uh, beyond opinion, a fellow by the name of Lt. Uh, Jayakandran writes a chapter on tr- on the Trinity, and at the end of it, he he has this conclusion: I draw my thoughts on the Trinity. I To a conclusion by highlighting the fact that Jesus preferred to put forward a relationship criterion as to what would distinguish his disciples rather than a religious criterion. He talked about love, talked about grace. I think this is surely the need of the hour because we have probably shed more blood in the name of religion in the last hundred years than in all previous centuries of human history combined. We need to recognize the fact that there is one aspect of apologetics that involves presentation of the truth taking into account philosophy, history, science, arts, and so on. But there is another aspect of apologetics, the expression of love within the Christian community. That is the final proof that we are the disciples of the Lord Jesus. It is the love within the Trinity that overflows into the world. In the same way, the love of the community of Christian believers should overflow to a lost and hurting world. Love for the saved precedes love for the lost. Indeed, some people find it easier to love their enemies than to love their wives community of uh, the community of loving christians is seen by the watching world not as a collection of perfect individuals while it would be great to have such a community few individuals are able to relate to perfect people The acted parable of John 13, which is where Christ washes the disciples' feet, portrays imperfect people in a relationship that reflects the mutual sharing of the Trinity. Jesus washes his disciples' feet and says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus' disciples are to wash one another's feet, admitting that we have dirty feet. And the world is attracted by the fact that we're, we're, we're willing to relate to one another in an amazingly practical way. As I wash your feet and you wash mine, the world comes to see us as two imperfect people in a perfect relationship. But we have two problems First, I do not want to wash anyone else's feet. And second, I do not want anyone to wash my feet. The problem is mutual and reciprocal. A God who exhibits mutuality and reciprocity, namely the triune God, is the one who can deal with this problem. He says, you know... Again, I had often read this passage in John 13 and and saw it that, you know, the washing of the feet talked about the fact that there was a a need for continual cleansing. But I never really picked up on the way Christ ended that. That we should follow His example. Not in having a foot-washing ceremony, but being willing to minister to each other as we get soiled by sin. He says, We got two problems in the church. One is, we don't want to wash anybody else's feet. We just want to push them aside. And secondly, we don't want our feet washed. Now, I shared before a little bit about the couple in our school who went too far morally and they were going to be asked to leave. Not because they got caught, not because, you know, they denied it, but because they came forward and said, We have sinned. Basically, they were saying, Wash our feet. And people were saying, Well, we just need to send them. Send them back to their church. Send them back home. We don't want to wash their feet. Fortunately, the Lord laid it on our hearts to want to minister to him. I thank the Lord for that couple, probably not too many weeks go by that I don't thank my Lord, the Lord for because they changed my ministry. I prayed, Lord, show me your heart, and He ripped my heart out, and it still hasn't healed. He showed me the pain He feels for the way we treat each other when we're struggling, when we're failing, and we're unwilling to come alongside each other. And it changed my ministry. It made me more and more gracious towards my students. And you know, Christ, when He makes this statement about washing each other's feet, He says about how we will be blessed if we do so. That Some of the greatest blessings I have experienced has been coming alongside hurting believers who had blown it. Again, that Girl, they were so afraid, leadership was so afraid, that if we let her stay, that it would just encourage others to sin. It didn't. Her best friend, the next year, came with her boyfriend and said, we want you to meet with us and guide us through our relationship because we don't want to make that mistake. She said, I sat in the car with her and she beat the steering wheel and screamed and said, I have destroyed my life. She said, I don't want to go there. And to see that couple get healed. And to see them go on and walk with the Lord and get married and have a good marriage. It's been a blessing. Grace is so beautiful Powerful. Now, can people take advantage of it? Sure. But God doesn't fear having His grace taken advantage of. It's worth the risk for the impact that it will have in people's lives. But grace does not flow from the old man. Grace comes from the new. You know, I remember again when I was on leadership at the time, and they told me I, I needed to call the boy's father and tell him that his son was going to have to leave because of this. And I, I, I called his father. They, they asked the wrong guy to do this, but uh, I called the guy's father who was in ministry. And he said to me, he said, Why do we feel we have to treat each other this way when God never treats us this way? And so I said, okay, wait. I'll go back. Wait. I kind of got in trouble for not telling him what I was supposed to tell him, but that's okay. Because God doesn't treat us that way. Now, is there a place for, for church discipline? Yes, but it's, it's not when somebody comes forward and acknowledges their sin and is looking for uh, someone to come alongside them. It's when somebody doesn't want to acknowledge their sin, when they want to deny it, when they want to keep doing what's wrong. That's where church discipline comes in. It's not when somebody comes and says, I have sinned. I need help. I need somebody to guide me in restoration. When the, Lord, when the world sees us dealing with each other graciously and dealing graciously with them, maybe they'll take a different view of us. Not all of them because, again, Christ was very gracious and there were those who hated Him and those who, who had Him crucified. But, you know, it was, the, it was the religious and self-righteous that struggled with His grace, not the sinners. And, you know, I just pray that we become a people marked by grace. Now, let me just say too, I will recommend a book. <laughs> if you really want to understand how God's grace works in your life, it's a little book, Discipline by Grace. And the word discipline is not one of chastisement, it's one of training, teaching, based on Titus. Uh, three, one and two. Uh, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's out of print, but you can find it on on the used book sites. It will. Really change a lot of your understanding. I used to have my students do this as an alternative assignment. They could waive one reading assignment and one written assignment if they'd read this book. And a lot of them took advantage of it, and a lot of them told me it really changed them when they came in their understanding of grace. Incredible book. Most concise writer I've probably ever known. You can't condense what he said. He doesn't waste any words. Uh, He says it very concisely. Uh, Not a theologian. He was on the board of directors of Dallas Theological uh, Seminary, but he was an industrialist. And so he's, you know, but it's an incredible work. It's worth your, your reading. But that brings us really... Uh, to the end of the instructional part of Colossians, uh, next week we 'll look at uh, closing remarks. If any of you have questions that I have left unanswered i 'll get now to answer them next week uh, <laughs> so, but and then I think the following week is prayer Sunday, and then we have a fifth Sunday when Thomas normally does something, and then Like I say, we're taking off for the summer. The first of June, we've got to be down in Florida at our sending church. And so, uh, we've got kind of a busy summer ahead of us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank You for Your grace. Lord, it's so easy for us to want grace when we're struggling, but be so slow to give it to others when they need it. But Lord, we thank You that You are always gracious to us. And that is it's not the law that's teaching us, it's your grace that's teaching us. Lord, may we come to understand your grace with greater clarity. And Lord, may we become ministers of your grace to those who so desperately need it. Now, Lord, we pray for the service ahead of us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in it. And Lord, we uh, just pray that you would be honored and glorified. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.